Hello again, everybody, and welcome to the Rumble Strip. I'm Mike Knapp, and as always, I'm joined by Eric Hall. Hello, Eric, how you doing? Great, Mike. Excited from Iowa. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, of course, we have a lot to unwrap tonight, uh, including some Indy 500 news, as well as last weekend's race at Iowa, and uh, a couple other things we've got on our mind. Don't have a guest this week, so you'll be able to hear us ramble coherently through, or hopefully coherently, uh, the rest of the show. But before we get started... I got some really big Rumble Strip news for you guys. Uh, our little show is now an ambassador for Infinite Nutrition. Uh, founded by endurance athletes, Infinite knows the difference between a good workout or competition and a great one is nutrition. And they have all sorts of different products that can be custom fit for athletes of all levels, which includes IndyCar driver Zach Veach. Eric is an endurance athlete. I know you're an Infinite user, and I've begun to use products as well what can you tell us about your own personal experience with infinite the personal advisors uh that you call to have them help you set up your mixture are, is an awesome way to get started in it if you don't know how to get going the whole idea of like personalized nutrition is a, a weird world to get into so they make it really easy and it works out really well i use them every race that i race and i race about once a month so i'm uh glad to be affiliated with them Eric's a beast, you guys. He he runs, he bikes, he swims. You like Eric and order Infinite products. So here's what's in it for you. Go to Infinite's website, which is infinitenutrition.us, and that's spelled I-N-F-I-N-I-T nutrition.us. Place an order using discount code the Rumble Strip, all one word, of course, and you'll get 15% off of your order. It's a great deal, and the code is always good, so you can use it anytime you place an order, and it helps support the show, and it helps support uh, a, a great sponsor in Infinite. So uh, thank you for listening and your support of the show, and you know, endurance athlete, athletics and nutrition and all that other stuff is something that uh, is uh, uh, you know what you do, then hop on their website and help us all out in a little bit. So. But anyway, Eric, 88-page uh, document came out from IndyCar today, or actually IMS today. I had a chance to peruse through it. Very thorough, very detailed, very interesting. 25% uh, capacity at IMS, as we know. Temperature checks and health checks and hand sanitizers. There's going to be a mask requirement, which, uh, you know, as of right now, there's an eating and drinking exception. So it seems like they've really got all their bases covered. I mean, this document was a Roger Penske special, just incredibly researched and detailed. And uh, they didn't leave any stones unturned, which makes me really feel pretty good about the prospect of uh, attending the race. I mean, put it this way, if the race were tomorrow, I would go. If the world changes between now and August 23rd, I may change that decision. But right now, I think with everything that they've done, I'm feeling really comfortable about going to IMS next month. How how are you feeling about it? You know, at 25% capacity, that puts you at, you know, 70, 75,000 people. And we've been to and seen Brickyard 400s in the 60,000-person range. And I've been to them, and they felt empty. So uh, I'll tell you, again, just waiting to get in is going to be the only rub. But with them pushing the race back to 2.30 start, that's going to give people a lot more time to spread out and get in. And, you know, I'm feeling pretty good about it uh, as of right now. Well, and I was at Iowa over the weekend, and then we're finding out today that uh, IndyCar was the promoter of that race, and they had a lot to 
do with the health checks and everything that were put into place. And uh, overall, uh, I was maybe about 75% comfortable being there. Uh, I loved being there because Iowa is my favorite track. I thought everybody did a great job of spacing out. I think the one thing that's going to be tough to enforce is just uh, wearing of the masks because uh, as far as what I saw at, at Iowa and you know, when I sat in my seat and I was distanced from people or on Friday night or then Saturday when I was sitting on the grass mounds and everybody's 10, 15 feet away, I took my mask off. But, um, you know, I, I really think trying to enforce that on race day, I think, could be the biggest challenge that uh, the people at IMS are going to face. Yeah, Doug Bowles has said that he they are going to enforce it and will reject people if they don't comply. So, you know, I don't know if that means they're going to be are they going to have the regular complement of yellow shirts? Cause that means there'll be more yellow shirts than, than usual per, per capita, I guess. Yeah. Um, also worth noting in all this, that Indiana is going to mandatory masking on July 27th, well ahead of the 500 as well. So right. there's going to kind of be some, um, you know, some momentum already here, at least with the locals. So I think it'll be all right. And again, We've seen NASCAR races there with that many people, and that place has felt empty, very, very empty. So, um, But then again, I think that they said they were going to limit infield um, access and track access, so there may not be as many places for people to disappear in uh, during this type of edition of the Indy 500. What's really makes me curious is that the 25% figure, because this is it 25% of what we see as a race day crowd of 350,000 people is a 25% they've been really coy is a 25% of the actual seating which there are about 240,000 seats I'm really curious to see um, you know what type of crowd they actually expect when they say uh, you know what that 25% means well and I I wonder if 25 the, the we're, again, worth noting, an, another another worth noting is the ticket sales are ending at the end of this week, I believe, for the 500. Right. So if you want tickets to act fast. But I, I feel like I saw a quick comment somewhere at the end of some article about how the, the language on the IMS website said that they have sold about 25% capacity tickets and 25% of the tickets. And they may just be calling good on it because – as we're seeing out West, the situation is deteriorating everywhere and putting things in danger and maybe best just to call it here and put out the action plan ahead of time and, you know, get everybody on board instead of trying to push the attendance up and up and up as the day marches closer. Yeah. I I think that just saying, okay, as of Friday, who's in is who's in is uh, a great thing because then that can help them anticipate how many people are going to show up and they can plan accordingly. Yeah. Cause they said they're going to distribute, you know, hand sanitizer and, you know, me as a Indy 500 uh, merchandise fan, are we going to get commemorative official face masks and stuff? You know, like <laughs> they got to know what to make and what to provide and whatnot, how much food to have and stuff. Cause they also worth noting their prepackaged most, most of it's going to be prepackaged. So, you know, you want to have the right amount of food on, on, on hand for everybody. Right. And, and also, uh, you know, that'll be, that'll go into the sanitation part of it as far as when they're uh working on bathrooms can they close some bathrooms so they don't have to worry about it you know can they do things that'll make it 
you know, a lot easier to get people around and and keep them as safe and as healthy as possible because this is the road they've decided to go down. So, uh, you know, it just comes down to everybody deciding uh, what they're comfortable with. I mean, I, after going to Iowa, uh, we'll see what happens. I'm not going to jump out and say, oh, yeah, it was totally awesome because, you know, technically, uh, you know, maybe I should be quarantining. I don't know uh, since I went out of state. But I think it comes down to, like anything else, just what you're personally comfortable with. And um, the group that's putting this on, I'm comfortable with them. And and I think that uh, they're going to be able to pull this off. And uh, unless, like I said, something changes over the next few weeks and it's very possible that could happen. But um, it looks like Indiana, the state of Indiana, is trying to get their ducks in a row to try and uh, avoid any more outbreaks. And I think a lot of the neighboring states are trying to do the same thing. I mean, Illinois, we've done surprisingly a, a, a great job in getting ourselves to uh, Illinois' level four of opening. And I know uh, in Ohio, they're trying to to stop some of the hot spots and everything like that. So it seems like um, leading up to this, it, it should be hopefully, or maybe I'm just being wishful because I don't, you know, want to miss the 500, but I'm, I'm confident with, with what they're doing. And so I don't have any reservations right now of going, uh, you know, of going to the race. And, but as we know, you know, three weeks, four weeks is a long time in this current situation. So, you know, time will tell. Like you said, I'd be I'd be ready to go tomorrow, but with, unfortunately, it's not tomorrow. And it does feel like we're it's kind of a now or never because if we say no, you know, and we continue down the the path of increasing, you know, outbreak or whatever, October may be completely off the table. So yeah. I, I'm I'm for I'm for it. Let's just do it. Let's do it and get it over with. And I think August 23rd has to be the drop dead date. Because whether I mean, if they make a decision in the next couple of weeks that there aren't going to be any fans there, that's fine. But they have to run the race on the 23rd. I just don't see any other. I know there are a lot of people that are that are saying, let's, you know, bump it back to October or or whatever. I, I say we get as many races in and in short. And we're going to talk about this in a minute. But I say we get as many races in in as short a period of a time as we can just to make sure we get those races in. I agree. And you even have to wonder if it's a missed opportunity, just uh, focusing so much on having 25% of the fans in there. If the, if Penske and crew would just say no fans and really put that energy on having an even better 500 broadcast for everybody out there. But you know, we're, we got to do what we got to do. And I agree with you completely that let's have as many races as we can right now, because as it, it sounds like the end of the schedule is in danger, I guess, yeah. as of right now. Yeah. And uh, you know, another good thing about the, about the 25% capacity, those local blackout will be lifted, which I think that's something that's completely antiquated and needs to go away anyhow. So uh, I'm thankful they're doing that. I mean, you know, just because you're somebody in the, in the city or in the TV broadcast zone, and I haven't lived there enough times, so I don't know who would be broadcasting the race since I know the channels have changed affiliations over the years. But giving people the chance to watch the race live in Indy is probably a great compromise and, and a great uh, olive branch to a lot of people, I believe. And I'm sure that's going to be enough to keep some people at home, which ultimately is probably the 
the best thing that you can do. Keep as many people as you home that can, or as many people home that you can. You know, my plan for race days is just to, you know, try and avoid the rush to the gate, you know, as much as possible. Maybe find a time at like noon or something when gates open at eight this year instead of six, by the way. But I, I'm going to try to avoid it. So I'm not there when a whole rush of people are going to go in. And I may not sit in my seats. If I find a section that is not very well populated, even if they're crappy seats, I'll probably just go sit there just to experience the race and to give myself enough space that I feel comfortable with. So um, I think a lot of other people will do the same. I think, you know, if, if I'm, and I looked at it this way, you go to downtown Chicago and there's 40, 50,000 people living in, in a square mile of downtown Chicago. And I was down there recently and walked amongst people and did all that stuff. So um, if I'm comfortable doing that in a densely populated area like that, then I should be comfortable uh, doing that at IMS. And that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, you bring up a good point, too, about uh, not sitting in your home seat. We could get the opportunity to experience the race from a whole different vantage point this year. Thinking about sitting in the north end because those aren't real populated seats anyway. And in, in that big, uh, big grandstand, like, you know, in between turns three and four. Uh, I don't know what that stand's called, but, uh, you know, I may end up going over there just for the fact that, uh, you know, if the yellow shirts let you sit somewhere that you don't have a ticket for, I don't know if they'll let you do that. But uh, if they do, I may try and go sit there because it just it's not a popular place to sit. And so I'll, uh, I'll, I'll sit in the hot sun one year just to make sure I can see the race. That's for sure. Right. So now that we have Indy pretty much locked in there's been more discussion about uh, the schedule and of course um with the rules that are in place in both oregon and california uh it makes the you know a couple races in september at portland and laguna a little bit like they might not happen and so uh there's talk of doing some more double headers and um just wondering if you were if you were the schedule czar what would you pick as a couple of different places for double headers. I mean, you got to think that the Grand Prix of Indianapolis that we're having on October 3rd was going to be an easy weekend. You know, the teams are close to home and it's, it's a, it's not a street race. It's not a track that has walls very close, safe for the front straight crashing at the speedway is not on the road course of the speedway. Isn't that big of a deal, you know? Um, right. Mid Ohio, but that may be too, maybe too soon. And, you know, only being what three or four weeks out still right now, that could be too soon to pull off a doubleheader. And of course, the other option is Gateway, which, considering last weekend how well Iowa went, I'd be down for a doubleheader at Gateway. I mean, honestly, Mike, I'm down for a doubleheader anywhere. So, right. Yeah, you know, it's worth noting too that Saint, the the finale at St. Pete. You know, Florida's not doing too well, so who knows about that? And can you have too many races? Like if the schedule does is able to play out as listed and we have these double headers, is that going to be detrimental to IndyCar or, or the teams? I don't think they're going to want to go above maybe like 16. So, I mean, we're at six now um, you get through Indy. That's eight. Let's say you double up at, uh, um, you know, gateway that's 10. Um, where do they go after that? Gosh, I'm drawing a blank. Portland. <laughs> Portland, yeah. So, so I mean, I think if you if you double up at at say Gateway, which would probably have to be done on a Friday night because I know that there's some other series that are there. So, um, I think they'd have to do a Friday Saturday thing. 
like they uh, like they just did, and a, and a doubleheader at IMS, and that may end up being the season, which a lot of people have wanted IMS to be, uh, you know, the season ender anyway. So maybe we give that a shot and see if uh, if IMS on the road course can put together a championship level race uh, that'll be worthy of you know what uh, usually comes down and what's at stake at the end of an IndyCar season. But um, I don't think the way everything structured right now, unless they found a track that's not on the schedule right now, I don't see them going beyond maybe 14, 15 races. So uh, I think that they'll be okay there. But like you said, uh, St. Pete, I don't know. I don't know. Unless you want to do like a, you know, like the UFC and you want to go with an IndyCar Island and you just block downtown St. Pete, you lock it down for two weeks and build the track there and they go race and nobody's there. You, you know, you can probably get it done, but, but yeah, that, that'd be a really perilous place to go unless you had some really uh, solid plans in place. You don't want to make St. Pete or its local residents hate you either by doing something like extreme, like that, you know, having them build the track and then not allowing anybody to come in, you know, yeah. I, I just don't know if that's a, a good long-term plan and whether the better part of Valor would just be to set it out this year. Uh, more thoughts about the calendar. St. Louis is currently scheduled for the Sunday. So, you know, if we do like a Friday, Sunday thing, that may be, that may allow the teams to rest a little bit and a double header the week after the 500, even just going to a, the small, a smaller oval the week after the 500 feels right in, in IndyCar yeah. or whatever, you know, we, the old line is after Indianapolis comes Milwaukee, and you know it's cool having St. Louis a week after this year. Of course, St. Louis um, is actually the racetrack is in Illinois, so right. we'll have to see in terms <laughs> of. Uh, I mean, if it were in Missouri, I think it'd be no holds barred. You know, as far as letting people in, um, the track actually is located in Illinois, so remain to be seen. I haven't heard anything from. Uh, the state government here in terms of what they want to do for that race. Um, I think so far it's been approved for, and I don't know if this is the city of Chicago or the rest of the state, but so far I think it's maybe 20, 25% has been approved. So maybe we can see the kind of crowd that we got at Iowa uh, at, at Gateway. So uh, as long as there can be fans and, you know, again, it comes down to people being comfortable or not. I think it makes a difference to the drivers to have fans there. So um, hopefully any race that we put on between now and the end of the season that, you know, we can have, uh, we can have fans there. I mean, I know they're, they're going to be at uh, mid Ohio and Indy of course, and, you know, gateway, it sounds like it'll be all right. And so hopefully we can do that. Some fans who want to experience IndyCar in the time of COVID can, uh, can do just that. So before we get to Iowa, let's talk about a couple other little news issues that are coming out. Uh, rumors are starting to fly that Iowa Speedway is in a little bit of trouble. And, uh, of course, when anybody's in a little bit of trouble, you turn to RP, Roger Penske, um, to help you out. And uh, that is a rumor that, that is flying around that uh, Iowa Speedway is in a little bit of trouble. And Roger Penske is thinking of making that purchase. Iowa can't drop off the schedule. I mean, that's all I'm going to say about it. IndyCar needs short tracks. It needs that track because it puts on some good racing. And and so, uh, you know, and it's become a real staple on the schedule. It's been on the schedule for 
uh, coming up on 10 years, if not more. So Roger talks about date equity and venue equity and everything like that. And, and this is what the deal is with Iowa as far as keeping that track. What links is IndyCar and Roger Penske willing to go through to make that happen? It's in Roger Penske's best interest to secure the future of IndyCar and its schedule as well. And the more pieces of that that he can control, the more in control he can be at the end of the day. And I was always curious about Roger Penske's divestment in racetracks, uh, you know, 20 years ago, because it seemed just like an obvious business uh, option for him to do. So I'm glad to hear him getting back in the in the game and. I, it, it seems to me that IMS may have owned a, a piece of a racetrack in the past as well, and it just it just makes sense. I, you know, NASCAR does it right with ISC and trying to keep as many of the, the pieces in-house as they can. So yeah. If, yeah. if Iowa is in danger, I agree with you that Iowa is a must-keep on the schedule. It really harkens back to early IndyCar. It really scratches a lot of old fan needs and wants and really produces a lot of good fast close racing the think about the contrails coming off of the wings during really humid summer nights and you know it need it needs to be there so roger just just go ahead and buy it we'll all we'll all go eventually <laughs> yeah and and you know if he needs help i'll i'll chip in <laughs> yeah right i'll chip in a couple, in a couple hundred bucks on like a you know personal seat license or something uh by brick to, to make it happen. Yeah, buy a brick, do something. But uh, yeah, I, I just think that NASCAR, it seems like they've given up on that track. And mm-hmm. I always let a lot of people go recently. And um, I think they're basically down to a bare bones uh, crew out there. And so it needs to be rescued. And uh, it, it'd be a, sh- a real shame to see that track not only go off the IndyCar schedule, but just go away, period. Because, I mean, I, I would, you know, got there early enough for the ARCA race and even the stock cars race well there. I mean, it's, it's a great track. The location isn't the greatest of course, but um, you know, I, I don't know if there are a million people that live within 50 miles of the track. I don't know, but uh, it doesn't seem like it or even a hundred miles of the track for that matter. It's just one of those, it's one of those staples that has been well-supported um, unlike a couple of other forays on the short tracks that IndyCar's made uh, over the years, Milwaukee, I'm looking at you. Uh, it is something that the, the fans want is short track racing, and IndyCar always puts on a good show, so Iowa is definitely a must for that. So uh, another Roger Penske item, this has been the Roger Penske show so far. They are, uh, Penske is breaking ranks with Acura in their sports car program so that that's definitely a interesting development and it makes you wonder what their future is uh in sports cars what 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 do you think is going on there it seems like acura wants to just have more rounds in the in the shotgun per se and wants to expand to two or three more teams and roger wants to stay the factory team so he's going to sit out 2021 and he has said that he's waiting for the rules to realign so he can take the same team and race at Sebring, Daytona, and Le Mans, and he hopes that happens in 2022. You know, the ACO and the FIA and the people that control international sports car racing are a fickle crew, so we'll see what happens. 
But the real question is, where does Hile and Juan Pablo go? As we were talking about last week, Roger Penske does a good job of locking up his star drivers and making sure that nobody can get a hold of them in IndyCar. So maybe this is another opportunity for those two guys to really walk the paddock and see what's out there. Yeah, I mean, both of them still have something left on the table. I mean, Montoya, obviously, I mean, when you watch him race in sports cars, he's he's still phenomenal. So I think even at, I think he's... Gosh, is he like 45 by now? But I, I really think that if he had a desire to at least race at the Indy 500, which I think he does, um, he could always find a ride to do that. Uh, whether he's in it for a, a full-time season, I'm not sure. I know his uh, young son is getting into racing himself. So maybe Juan Pablo just wants to get into a couple of events and uh, you know support his son and his racing. And if I had, and we talked about it last week, if I had a two-car IndyCar team, you know who I'm filling that team with, and then I'm finding some money in a third car for uh, Juan Pablo to drive the Indy 500 for me because his record there is is almost impeccable. Also, Helio is really competitive at Indianapolis still, and he is a three-time winner. And if you could give Helio that fourth win, you know he's going to have a lot of a lot of weight in the in the paddock for years to come if he continue can continue to still perform. So I'm really excited to see where both of these guys' future goes. You know, uh, you could see you could see Juan Pablo going anywhere in, in the paddock if they if they have a if they have a competitive ride for him. With as you said, I don't know how much he wants to do another full season of IndyCar with everything else that's going on with him, but you know, still come and come and do a couple races, come, come and race against our guys. From the sports car standpoint, you know, he, he loves it. He races what, how many times a year, six, eight times a year. Right. So that leaves him plenty of time for, uh, you know, his family and, uh, and his hobbies. I know he's a really big model airplane guy. So, you know, so a lot of things that he does off the track and I'm sure he probably has some business is going but yeah i'm sure he's got an itch to race and he wants to scratch it and no better place for him or elio to do it at ims because elio i think will chase that 500 until somebody tells him he's got to stop i think elio is one of those guys where from the movie uh uh moneyball where it's like you know sometimes uh you get told that you're done playing baseball other times somebody tells you but ultimately one of those ways someday happens and so i think for elio elio's always going to convince himself that he's got one more indy 500 win in him so i think he's gonna if he drove till he was 50 it would not surprise me and i mean he's a great physical shape still got his fastball on ovals i you know he still knows what he's doing so why not and especially that fourth win would just change everything because it's like i can't and maybe it's the lack of a championship on Elio's part, but you're talking about a three-time IndyCar winner. You're talking about a guy who's won a total of 30 IndyCar races, and it just doesn't feel like he's a three-time Indy, Indy 500 winner. I mean, we put, and deservedly so, but we put um, uh, we put Dario. You know, Dario's considered, oh, he's one of the greatest IndyCar drivers of all time. Well, yeah, but... Outside of championships, they both have three wins. They have about the same number of overall victories. So why isn't Elio put up on that pedestal? Is it is it just because people just kind of don't like him? Or I've I've never figured that out because the guy's a three time winner. He should be, 
you know, Indy 500 royalty, and I just don't know if he's always seen that way. And not only is a three-time winner, but it seems, especially in the last five or six years, he is always there at the end, waiting to pick the pieces up if something yeah. happens at the front. I mean, Helio has been able to place himself in the catbird seat almost every single year, but unfortunately has not been able to, to capitalize on it. And, you know, I think you're right that his lack of a championship is what ultimately will hold him back in the memory and annals of IndyCar, IndyCar fans and IndyCar history. But nobody can shake a stick at a fourth Indy 500 win. If he has that fourth win, then he is up there with the greats, hands down. Because, frankly, when we're talking about Indy 500 and IndyCar, we're not talking about championships. So Helio still has a way to go. And you make a very good point about his physical condition. Not only is he in physical condition to drive, but he's also still very positive and in a very good mental space to drive. As we know, kind of A.J. Ford at the end of his career, he was getting kind of tired and you know, you lose the drive, you lose that winning itch, and, you know, what's the point of going on after that? And Helio certainly has not lost that fire yet. Yeah, and to get that fourth win, again, puts him into such an echelon, because I I just, I don't know, as competitive as the Indy 500 is now, uh, you know, if it's this way for another 50 years, I don't know if we'll ever see another four-time winner. You know, Helio may be, you know, when you talk about, and I'll make a baseball analogy, um, whoever last got to 300 wins, you know, they were, they talked about that person and I'm not sure who it was without looking it up right now, but you know, they, they, uh, talk about that person maybe being the last one and it's very possible that Elio could be the last one to win for race, at least in our lifetime. Cause I don't think, you know, we're going to see right now. I mean, does any active driver have more than one? no. So, you know, to, to think that any active driver now or any driver over the next generation is, is going to put together, you know, like a Rick Mears type career of four wins in 15 races or, or four wins in 20 races. I just don't see it happening if, it, if the 500 stays as competitive as it is, 20 people in the field have a chance to win the race. Yeah, man. I mean, you're you're making me really think hard, too, because we're in the era of Dixon and, you know, Bourdais was just 10 years ago and was never able to get a Bourdais prime time was 10 or 15 years ago. And he was never able to snag that Indy 500 when even even when he was in the in some of the best equipment in the field and you know, you think about how hard it was for Will Power to get that win and how hard it was for Pagano to get that win and how hard it was for Tony Kanan to get that win. And you're exactly right that just the that luck almost the luck that you need to pull off four wins in a reasonable amount of time is is un- unbelievable. And, yeah, this may be our last chance. And when you look at when you look at the drivers who have wins, Alexander Rossi is the exception of this rule, but you know, you look at the current crop of guys who have won the race, it all took them a while to win it. You know, I mean, Rossi, of course, won it his first time out, out the gate, but how many times did it take power? How many times did it take Hunter Ray? How many times did it take Sato or, or Simon or anybody that's won over the last six, eight, 10 years? How many times did it take them to, to actually win the race? And so, your, your starting point, uh, for the most part, is going to be six, seven, eight years in your, into your career. 
So you're halfway into your career when you win your first race and you're expected to win three more in the second half of your career. And in this era, I don't think that's going to happen. I agree. And, you know, even just 10 years ago, we were thinking like Dario was just automatic at the, at the speedway almost. And yeah. we were hoping for a, a new winner. Like just, we just want a new winner. We don't want a repeat winner. And now all we have is new winners. It's just, it, it's the, the, the ebbs and flows of the Indy 500, it's it's nutty sometimes. Well, and it's what makes it the greatest race in the world. But one thing I will say about Dario, and you want to talk about circumstances beyond your control. I think Dario was going to, he was in line to win a fourth Indy 500. But then he had that accident and, and his issues with concussions and it forced his hand to retire. Uh, you know, you just never know. And, and so there's so much that goes into winning the race four times when shoot when you look at outside of rick mirrors when you look at floyd and and al senior and the number of times they had to run the race to win it four times and that's another thing i just don't see a lot of careers going you know 20 plus starts to make the numbers try and and work out i mean what, what rick mirrors did and that's why in my opinion he's the greatest driver in 500 history i mean what he did was phenomenal but he's also the outlier yeah, you know, and so, yeah, like I said, the, Elio may be the last of, of people to get a real chance to get that fourth win. So, hey, you know, with everything that's going crazy with 2020, maybe it happens next month. So maybe that would be the perfect cap to 2020 is to, to have Elio in his fourth Indy 500. I'm sure you've heard of NASCAR drivers get, quote unquote, the call. I wouldn't mind Elio getting the call this year if that exists. I'm sure it doesn't, but <clears throat> Dale Jr. winning the the, the Colt 400. Oh, <laughs> did did I say that out loud? I meant to whisper it. But <laughs> Dale, well, if we you're don't listening, give, we don't give out restrictor plates in IndyCar. So <laughs> yeah, Dale, if you're listening, we love you, dude. You are the best. So just had to make fun of you there for a second. Anyway, enough with all the news. Let's get into talk a little bit about racing. Iowa did not disappoint. Um, I thought Saturday, even with Joseph Newgarden's dominating win, which we called last week before the race, uh, you know, even started, we said, hey, he's probably going to win one of the two. Probably could have won both of them if things had gone right. But even on Saturday night, um, being there, uh, you know, and, and watching other battles going on on the track than just what was up front. Uh, you know, there was there was some great racing both nights, and uh, I was really glad that I made the trip over there to watch. Yep, and it was really great seeing the high line come in. What a stark contrast to Texas that we had this weekend. Uh, from the drop of the green flag on Friday night, we had two lanes of racing and a second competitive lane, and the, you know a lot of the races ran in the second lane up there. And yeah. again, just going back to where we've already been tonight and saying how good Iowa meshes with IndyCars. Yeah, I wish there was a little bit more passing because it seems like there's still an issue with dirty air, but I think when mm. when you're throwing together, so it, it's almost like watching F1 races when you when you're just throwing so much arrow on these cars. Of course, they're going to give off a lot of dirty air. That's just that's just the nature of the beast. And you know, trying to figure out you know how to maybe make that a little better would be something I'd like to see moving forward. But overall, what I really enjoyed a lot 
not being at the race. Um, and I ended up watching the, the broadcast of both races, so I had the perspective. But actually being at the race was seeing the difference between old and new tires. That was just, that was freaking amazing. Just how guys could just, they put on new tires and and two guys that impressed me whenever they were on new tires were uh, the McLaren boys, uh, you know, Pato Award and uh, Oliver Askew. When they had new tires on their cars, those cars were rocket ships. And I that was something that was really fun to watch is when somebody would come out of the pits and a lot of cars on track were still on old tires and, and they would just lay them to waste. Yeah, and on Friday we saw a lot of, disparate strategies at the beginning of the race with Rosenquist taking a Hail Mary and going for a two-stop strategy and a couple guys going for the fast four-stoppers. So we did have a lot of coming and going with tires and there was a lot of incidental side-by-side racing and it was just felt like a, just a really exciting night of short track racing. And, you know, it didn't seem like marbles played a big, uh, big role at the end of the race either. Some reason, you know, I think we had a couple late race cautions and they were able to get the sweepers out there both nights and just really keep the track clean. And it's really fun to be able to watch the guys conserve tires and, you know, who, who does a good job and who's got the tire at the end of the run. And as you, as you say, the McLaren boys really, really did a good job. And that may speak, obviously two very young, talented drivers, but the excellence of the organization that McLaren is starting to build over there. I thought both of those guys, especially their first uh, experience at, at Iowa, because even though Pato raced several times last year, he's reached a point now where, you know, this is the first time he's going to all these tracks because he was pretty much done after, after uh, the 500 when he signed with Red Bull and then started racing uh, in Europe and then later in Japan and so um, this is his first time around. It's, you know, Askew's first time around, not an Indy Lights car. And I am just, I'm flattened by, you know, the job both of those guys have done this year because uh, one of them's going to end up winning a race if uh, they keep doing what they're doing. Yeah, I feel how quickly we're going to move on from Rosenquist saying, man, he's he's definitely going to win a race this year. And he he got his race in early and it feels like a ward is definitely going to win a race at some point this year. He's been close already a couple times. And man, he's a he's a fast he's a fast young guy. Two other guys I think I could see winning races. One is Connor Daly could win a race this year. I mean, the guy I don't think we've ever doubted his talent. I always worried about Connor just mental state and the fact that that I think he kind of has broken away from a few things that had hindered him in the past even off track when I look at the fact that for you know for a long time the guy was considered you know Alex Rossi and and, and James Hinchcliffe's little brother and haha let's make jokes about Connor and he's sleeping on people's couches and blah 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 but you know you're you're an IndyCar driver what is it did that do to your confidence that you're sleeping on people's couches and you can't make ends meet and things are this way and people are are kind of you know making jokes that aren't aren't necessarily laughing with you you know what does that do to your mental state and then also Connor always used a lot of negative talk you know when he would just say oh well you know something bad would happen in a race and it's like well that's just my luck now or he even said that when they were playing the amazing race you know and he had a couple of times where they had down moments and he got really down on himself and i don't see that in him anymore so many things have clicked for him 
in terms of his fitness and where he's at mentally and everything like that from a year and a half ago. And the biggest two takeaways I have for Connor now is one, he's got a chance to win a race this year. And two, he has more than proven in a half a dozen races that he he's worthy of a full-time seat and she, he should have one moving forward. I mean, can we take a step back and just remind ourselves what he did this weekend? He put a Carlin car on pole at Iowa and the Carlin, the same Carlin car that missed the Indy 500 last year, two years ago yeah. as well. I mean, this team is not steeped in oval skill. They're not steeped in, in oval results. And he was able to stick it on the pole. And what he starts second in the, in the first race as well, like almost was on pole both nights, if not for Joseph Newgarden. So I think he was third. I think he started third on Saturday night. Third on Saturday night. That was one of our markers earlier in the year that we were talking about was how Daly was going to do in the Carlin car because we know that the Ed Carpenter racing car is a good piece of equipment and he can get it done in there. And he more than proved himself on Friday night and Saturday night in the car. I mean, he finished in the top 10, finished eighth place on Friday night in that Carlin car. And that is just amazing. He has earned a lot of respect from me and I hope to see more good things going forward and for him to, as you say, to parlay it into a full season ride next year, because he's definitely deserving of it. It was so competitive Friday and Saturday. The the mistakes were made in the pits and the decisions when they brought him in. And just I think Friday night really was just some circumstances and, and he just got caught up in the pits. And then Saturday, Newgarden was so good in a way Connor is not necessarily fighting for a championship so the guy may as well roll the dice sometimes and fight for race wins Carlin made the decision that they did to bring him in hoping for a yellow or hoping that they could take advantage of newer tires than everybody else or track position and it just didn't happen but you really had to go to that extreme if you wanted to beat Newgarden and then hope for a little bit of luck and it just didn't happen for him yeah, and you know that's how you got to race Indy car races from the back of the field. Anyway, you just got to kind of go off, and hopefully something crazy happens. You know, Dale Coyne racked up that win in Houston with um, Carlos Huerta's, you know, couple couple yeah. eight years ago on just some wild pit strategy. So it's been known to happen, and it, you know, it really helps if you're fast. And Connor Daly was fast the fastest weekend, so it was unfortunate that he wasn't able to finish a little bit higher in race two, but still an amazing weekend for the kid. Another amazing weekend, of course, from, was from Simon Pagano, who uh, didn't even make a qualifying attempt, which relegated him to uh, the 23rd spart- starting spot both uh, nights, just carved through the field on Friday night to to win the race and then uh, put up another another good effort on uh, Saturday. I mean, 20, 25 laps into Friday night's race, I tweeted out that it, I said, hey, I really like Simon right now. Just uh, his car looks so good, especially coming off the corners, which in a place like Iowa, that's what you have to be able to do. His car looked great all night long, wins the race. Um, what did he finish Saturday? Or fourth, I think? I mean, it's unfortunate that he's had so many mm-hmm. poor qualifying efforts this year because, you know, maybe if he had better qualifying efforts, he might be sitting in Scott Dixon's position because he's been very, very good this year. It's good to see Penske get their team kind of back together they had 
five top five finishes over the course of the weekend, and their one one trip out of that was a loose wheel nut, which kind of has been the story for all of this whole year for Penske has been pit 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 lane gaffes, but they weren't able to escape it this weekend as. You know, they sent power out with that loose wheel and he hit the wall, but still a really recovered, a recovered weekend for Team Penske, them showing us why they are where they are. And we mentioned Will Power and he was a little bizarre this weekend. And I'm, I'm just starting to wonder if there's any sort of desperation settling in or do we just do we just say he was crazy from the heat on Saturday night? with his post-race interview. I'm not sure, but yeah, I don't know if he's starting to feel uh, a little bit of pressure. And of course, Friday night wasn't his fault, but you know, in the, in the final box score, there isn't a line that, that, that says, was it their fault? And you put yes or no in there. You finish where you finish and, and your crew is part of your team. And he had that loose wheel, you know, that, that just happens. But then to, you know, finish second the next night and then just go on that, rant that he did i mean i i just wonder you go back to how he drove at road america and some of the things he said and did this past weekend if maybe the the pressure's getting to him a little bit or is the pressure already passed and is there a possibility that he already knows he doesn't have a ride with roger penske for next year yeah you know i i just like you said it was a very stark contrast uh between the willpower that we know and the willpower that we saw getting out of the car, though, you know, it was hot and dehydrated and stuff and willpower was going to do what willpower does, but still, you, you know, you got to wonder what's going on up there with him. Well, and another person you got to wonder what's going on with is uh, Ryan Hunter Ray, because again, um, we make the jokes or Marshall Pruitt and some of those other people make the jokes about the cartoon anvil and stuff like that. He didn't, he, he was his own anvil. This, this past weekend, I mean, I don't know how an experienced driver makes the mistakes that he did. You know, I know he's an Indy 500 winner, and he, dro- he drove to win that race. He's a championship winner, and he was kind of the one that hung on the longest that year, and that's kind of indicative of, of Brian Hunter Ray. I just... The cartoon anvil falls on him a lot, but you know you got to be in the position for the con- for the cartoon anvil to, to to be above your head in the first place. And Ryan Hunteray kind of is always there in position for the worst to happen to him, where other drivers are able to put themselves in position for the best to happen to them. So, I've never been a Ryan Hunteray believer. I know that he's a good race car driver on his day, but it doesn't surprise me that he hit the wall two times leaving the pit lane at Iowa. It just it's a, such a rookie mistake and so in line with how Ryan Hunter Ray has shown himself in through, through a lot of his career, unfortunately. And it, and it just sort of uh, puts a bow on, on Andretti Autosports issues this year. I mean, they just, they just aren't getting results. I mean, uh, Alex Rossi did what he does and, and got a couple of good results and got himself up to 10th to in points. But, but man, they've, they've just been just two steps forward, one step back and a lot this year. It, it's just kind of baffling to me. I mean, with five cars, they've got to be spread too thin. It's they, it, it's time to time to see something something give over there. And I, you know, I don't know if it's because of COVID and they they can't do their pit stop practices and work as close as they would want to. But it it, it just has the feeling that they're spread just a little too thin right now, and they just cannot get a hand. It's you know, it's the, the allegory of the the damn the dam springing or the dike springing all the holes and you only have so many fingers 
before you just got to start letting some of the leaks go. And I wonder if that's what's happening at Andretti right now. And, and of course, then you go to Chip Ganassi Racing and Scott Dixon held serve this weekend. Uh, didn't qualify really well, raced extremely well, like uh, he's known to do, and um, didn't lose too many points this weekend. All, all you really got to do in his position is just not lose points as much as possible. Just get that, get that race weekend in. He's to the point now where he gets the race weekend in, he gets as good a result as he can, and he just moves on to the next racetrack. And th- and that's what he did this weekend. Yeah, and he made the best out of what uh, out of a pre- marginal qualifying position both nights. And worth worth reminding that we're going to Mid Ohio next week, where or in a couple weeks, where Scott Dixon is almost a lock when we unload there. So, you know, if he can drive mistake free, like you say, as much as possible, he's going to fall into a couple wins by the end of the season, and he's going to be a tough man to beat. And of course, you look at some of the guys that are that are sitting at the bottom, the bottom of the top ten, I guess, in in uh, in points. And the hard part is, I mean, Rossi's in tenth, and he's a long way back. Colton Hurd is in seventh place, and he's a hundred points back. And the part is, and I'm going to name drop here. I used to um, cover the Western Open Golf Tournament here, and I did a lot of, I wrote a lot of stories about uh, Tiger Woods. And one time, I finally got to ask him a question. And he was maybe in eighth or ninth place heading into the final round. And I said, I said, when you get in this position, do you worry about how many people are ahead of you or how many shots behind you are? He goes, you got to think about both. He said, because I could, I, I have no control over what everybody else does. And, you know, you take Alexander Rossi's situation. Let's say he goes and wins at uh, Mid-Ohio, goes and wins at Indy. And Scott Dixon finishes second both times. Well, he, he he's about the same place he was when everything started, you know. And and that's what's really tough is as long as as Dixon just keeps doing his thing, biting into that lead is just going to be really really difficult. If you can, if a driver can find some consistency here in the mid to end part of the season, though the other championship hopefuls are going to fall away, and only the cream will be left. And if you can make yourself part of the cream of the crop and find this second, this mid season consistency, you can be there at the end and be in the place to challenge Scott Dixon. We do have double points for the season. Oh no, no, we've suspended double points for the season finale this year. So I take that back, but we, uh, as the schedule is planned, we still do have a double header at Laguna. So there's time for, you know, some points, some points to be won. And it, the, we are in the midpoint of the season, and a driver is going to have to start finding some consistency besides Scott Dixon. You know, a couple other notes about Iowa. I mean, one guy that really impressed me was Alex Pillow. There were a couple times he looked like he wasn't having much fun out there on, on Friday, but he was a different guy on Saturday. I mean, I just the way, the way he drove on Saturday was nothing like he drove on Friday. The guy's obviously... Um, showing that he's number one, he's fast, but that he's also a very quick learner. What a great way to experience your rookie season, being able to go to some of these tracks two days in a row in the big cars. In in other careers, you'd have to you'd have to spend a couple years in the lower cars, and you'd get to go to Iowa. But you have no idea how that it handles as an Indy car, as we see that Freedom One Hundred races very very differently than the Indy Five Hundred does. So sure. I. I I don't I it's not a surprise that these drivers, these rookie drivers, first year drivers are finishing well on the second performing better. Maybe, you know, 
obviously as the cautions fall and the and the race gets kind of sideways at the end you, your finishing position may not reflect how well you race during the race but yeah we are seeing the rookies race better in the second day second day so uh, we're really teaching them well this year they're getting a good learning opportunity so uh, i'm working on him for uh, next week's show so hopefully we can have uh, alex join us next week couple of final notes the arrow screen passed it it's first couple of tests uh, this weekend and I think anybody who wasn't a fan of them going into this weekend certainly is a fan of them now after uh, what they did especially in the Colton Herd Arenas VK crash. I mean a lot of seasoned uh, IndyCar drivers are saying that Arenas VK would have been in a whole lot of trouble had that had that halo portion of the arrow screen not been there and you know he was able to get out and walk away so that's a very promising sign. And also, Marcus Erickson was saved from a from a probable helmet impact by the aeroscreen as well from some debris from that same heart wreck. So in yeah. two, two cases in that same that same crash, we had the aeroscreen did its job and we had safe drivers because we the last time well, obviously we lost Justin Wilson to um debris into the cockpit but if we remember a couple six seven years ago to james hinchcliffe getting hit in the head down there coming into turn seven at the ims road course and you yep. getting knocked out and you know hope, hopefully we won't see that again cars going over the top of you is one thing of course but you know the biggest thing is like you said debris entering the cockpit and especially and you know tires don't come loose in, in indie cars all that often but i said it a few weeks ago that i thought that there was going to be some sort of big cockpit impact which is going to wake us all up to uh, the benefits of the aero screen and and we had that happen in a couple instances uh, over this weekend and i think they've more than proven that that they're worth the challenges let's put it this way that they've been so far this season that, that they, they've more than paid for themselves already yeah, but as we are preaching the or you know extolling the virtues of the aero screen, we did see another car get up, get some air, get up over the concrete wall, but thankfully did not impact the catch fence. Kind of spun around on the top of the on top of the safer barrier and find found its way back into the racetrack. So you know, still the ever present danger of like being launched into the catch fence is still there. It felt like we were just a millimeter away from disaster again. Um, in another way that the aero screen may not have been able to help. So that the question of fencing and the what does the future of track fencing look like is is still to be solved. Right, but one uh, thing it also showed us too is that we usually associate cars getting up in the air or or whatever just at the high speed ovals and this was cars coming up to speed as they were you know coming back to a green flag and we had a, a crash that violent that always just got to stay as fans as competitors as as whatever you know we still always got to say a prayer for the for those guys and and those ladies when uh, they get in a car because you know the danger is still there we can do all we want to make these cars as safe as they are. And I mean, cars are tanks now and they're so safe, but you know, there's always that, that danger there. And uh, hopefully, or thankfully, I guess everybody that was involved this weekend uh, gets to race another day. So we'll just uh, chalk that up to the people who put uh, a lot of time, a lot of effort, uh, a lot of knowledge into the design of these race cars. 
and, you know, it is worth remembering that stuff can go very wrong on a road course as well. In fact, July 14th, 1996, so just a yeah. little over a week ago, we lost Jeff Krosnoff up at um, Toronto to, you know, wheel-to-wheel contact into the catch fence. So yeah. it doesn't matter whether we're at ovals or road courses or street courses, that, that imminent danger is always there. Well, that's why that's why they're I'm 51 years old and I still think they're superheroes. So <laughs> right. that, that's part of the reason why I think is I that's uh, one job in this world that I know I definitely could not do. So, Eric, we're a couple of weeks without racing between now and uh, mid-Ohio. What, it, what are you thinking about heading as we head towards uh, what could be the, the start of the second half of the IndyCar season? I feel like a lot of the rest of the IndyCar paddock is going to be glad for just a couple weeks to breathe, to, you know, I'm sure that the the teams had a day or two off this this week, probably their first day or two off in a, in a couple weeks, and I'm sure that they were happy about that. Um, it'll be nice to breathe before we really start getting back into the swing of things because after this three-week break, it's going to be coming at us quick and fast again. So it's... We're looking to the mid part of the season, like you said. Really, I'm going to be looking for the who's going to be able to make themselves known, who's going to come out and challenge Scott Dixon, you know. And once we once we get to uh, mid Ohio weekend, the races uh, come fast and furious. And like we've said every week, pretty much since uh, we've been doing this together, that that this whole IndyCar season is a bit of a uh, you know fly by the seat of your pants, moving target thing. So who knows, man. Maybe a couple extra races get added in September. That, All right. can, that can change the championship outlook. Expect the unexpected, I guess, when it comes to the, Indi- or the rest of the IndyCar season. Well, that'll do it for this episode of the Rumble Strip. Eric, your socials? E-Rock underscore in underscore Indy. Like I said, this guy once did how many laps at IMS? 40. He rode, yeah. a, he rode his bike 100 miles at IMS. And how many times have you done that? Just the two times. Just the two times. So he's ridden his bike 200 times or 200 miles at IMS. I've run the Indy Mini eight times. So I've run only run 20 miles. He's ridden 200. I mean, the guy, the guy, all you got to do is put him in a race car and I think he's ready to go. <laughs> yeah, please, please call me. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, you can catch me on uh, Twitter and Instagram. Instagram at the Rumble Strip, and thanks to everybody who's been listening and checking in. And uh, I've got a lot of likes on my, uh, you know, Instagram posts and um, picking up more followers. So thank you all for following, for listening to the show. Um, thanks again to everybody, especially our new friends in Sweden, for um, the Marcus Erickson show that was uh, just amazing. The response that we got to that. So uh, you know, and of course, you can find this show on iTunes, SoundCloud, and iHeartRadio. Well, that'll do it for this week. We'll see you at the track.